You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Begin this morning by, well, by telling a story. When I was a kid... I was deeply afraid of the dark. Now, when I say a kid, I mean like, oh, it was recently 20 minutes ago. And when I say deeply afraid of the dark, I mean like deep-seated irrational phobia, utterly paralyzed by fear of the dark. To where I, I, would, I would shake, it was, it was oppressive, I couldn't move, I was terrified, my imagination would go crazy, and my parents tried all sorts of, of helps, they tried specialists, people trying to convince me with logic and reason that there was nothing there, and I knew that, and that didn't work, and so my dad resorted to a, just to a beating every now and then, strangely that didn't work either, I don't know, and there was a lady in our church who my mom had sort of asked to begin to paint these little sweet little pictures. They had these little caricatures and they had this sweet little text and it would be little passages of scripture which were really precious like your word is a lamp unto my feet. Get it a lamp because lamps make light and so you shouldn't be scared and quit waking us up and that kind of a deal. But the problem was as cute as those things were well, I couldn't see him when the lights were out, all right? So that wasn't a whole lot of help. But, you know, just as, as kids do, you sort of learn to self-regulate. And, you know, I would, I would look for the thin line of light under my door and, and wait. As long as I could see that, I'd be okay. And then at some point, I would fall asleep. And over time, I began to sort of self-regulate. And I began to sort of uh, just get around my fear of the dark. And, and yeah, some of the logic began to sort of catch up. And I'd say, you know what, there, there can't really be anything there. And yet, I would go to a friend's house and I'd spend the night. And uh, he'd turn off the lights and I'd be totally freaked out. And I would remember, okay, remember, remember, it was three steps to his nightlight. Turn in the Starsky and Hutch nightlight, I'm going to be okay. And I'd get that thing on and he'd fall asleep and I'd say, okay, I'm all right. And every now and then, I would find myself in a situation where it was just dark and I was not in control and I was helpless. And I remember uh, in college, two of my roommates and another friend invited me to go deer hunting. One of them said, hey, I got a buddy whose cousins, roommates, nephews, veterinarians, hygienists, uncle has a place. We can go and hunt on his land. Translation, I drove by some property and I didn't see anybody. Let's go hunting. I don't think we had any, uh, I don't think we had any legal claim to be on this property whatsoever. I had never really gone hunting before, didn't have a license, and my gun came off the Mayflower. <laughs> what could possibly go right, all right? So we go out to this place. It's about an hour and a half drive outside of Waco. You might say, hmm, where in Waco? I have some land there. I couldn't tell you. Just we left Waco. Which direction? I don't know. We just left Waco. And they said, go up into that green box and just sit there. And when a deer comes by, you shoot it. And I'm like, okay, which end is that exactly? Like, <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know. There was no training. This is brilliant. By the way, if my kids ever tried to do this these days, I would have them incarcerated. This is a terrible idea. <laughs> We go out to this property. I walk down the line. They tell me where the box is. I crawl in the box and I sit there and nothing happens. I mean, like nothing happens. The molecular structure of the cosmos ceased to move. It just, everything stopped. And I just sat there. 
until finally it got dark. And I kind of got wigged out, like, man, I'm not going out there, it's dark. I'm not going out there, it's dark. And so finally I'm like, it's really dark now. It's way dark, I gotta get out of here. And so I stepped out of my stand and I got outside and I mean, it's like the ace of spades, just black as it could be. Couldn't see my hand and I thought, okay, I'm gonna die here. I have no idea where I am. I, I recalled that there was a kind of a weird prickly, like a mesquite tree or something, somewhere near the stand. But I didn't remember which direction. So I thought, if I'm going to start walking, I'm going to fall in a hole, or I'm going to get trampled by cattle or something, and I'm just going to die here. And so I did what you would probably do. This is way before cell phones. This is when, of course, was I packing a flashlight? No! I didn't have a sandwich. I didn't have anything. And so I took my dad's, you know, 1833, 30-06, and I went, bam, bam, bam! And I shot it in the air three times. And the Cessna did not fall out of the sky, which was good news, but nobody responded with anything else either. And so I was alone, now with this completely useless piece of metal. I had only three bullets, and they were now someplace <laughs> in Hillsboro. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry if that was your Buick. My bad. So I'm lost as I can be. I have nowhere to go, but I felt like, okay, that way is at least sort of downhill. And so at least my laziness came up. Like, maybe that'll save me, my laziness. I don't want to walk uphill. I started walking downhill and realizing I have absolutely no idea where I'm going. I'm thinking I'm going to get just like garroted with barbed wire. I don't know. I'm just, if I keep going. And then it finally happened. I see way off in the distance, there is this little bitty light. And I mean like a pin light. And it was kind of just doing making little figure eights. I saw that thing and I gasped and I took off running towards it with everything I had. And I must have fallen, I don't know, I'm not wanting to exaggerate, but about 75 times I hit the ground. And every time I would hit, I would make sure that my eyes stayed on the light. And so I'd like do this and I would barrel roll and I'd get up and I just kept going. Just in case that light went out, it was my only hope. And I mean, listen, I remember it even as I'm telling the story, that feeling of, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. But that was my hope. And I finally got to where the light was coming from and I could see the figure eight thing was making a little bit larger. And I finally got up to him. It's my buddy, Drew. He's eating a sandwich. I'm like, dude, what happened? Where's everybody been? He's like, man, we've been back for two hours. We figured you were like trying to drag in a deer. I was like, what's a deer? Where have you guys been? We've just been waiting on you. I said, you didn't like come looking? He goes, no, we didn't know where you were. I said, well, neither did I. Why did you shine the light then? He said, oh, so that you'd have something to see. So that you could see. I would love to tell you that I had this marvelously, deeply, profoundly spiritual moment in that time, but I didn't. I punched Drew in the arm as hard as I could and tried to stifle back my tears because I was freaked out. But years and years later, it finally occurred to me, oh my goodness, that story is more my story. It's my redemption story. Because I knew enough I knew enough that in my life, I was damaged goods. I knew, even at a relatively young age, in, in late adolescence, I knew that the guy that stared back at me in my mirror had done enough bad stuff that I was dirtied. 
I was damaged goods. I was not fresh out of the wrapper anymore. Now, I know now that all of us are conceived in iniquity and all those things, but I'm just saying, I knew that I had stained myself and I would never again be able to look at myself with purity, with, with holiness, with goodness, with any sort of self-confidence. I was damaged goods. I needed help. I was hopeless and hapless. Which is why I think perhaps my favorite book of the Bible, at least this year, is the Gospel of John. This is the Gospel of John. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, in a very real sense, is like my buddy Drew, wiggling his little pen light way off in the distance so that you will see. So that you will see. Now, I'm going to read the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John. I'm just going to read these straight through. I will completely uh, be transparent and confess that the first service, I didn't make it. I got about three verses in and I lost it because this is some of the most profound text. No, it is the most profound text in existence. Secular scholars, biblical scholars will tell you this is the most profound piece of literature extant in the world. This is the high point, the fulcrum, the pinnacle of human consideration. It doesn't get bigger nor better than this. Now, that's an awful lofty setup. Watch. It doesn't get any higher than this text. Gospel of John, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. See, to this day, I hate darkness, out of control, helpless. I love this verse. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Different John. This is John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is God's word. This is the Gospel of John. Now, the Gospel of John was written by the apostle, the disciple John, somewhere in the mid-80s AD. John is sitting in Ephesus. Ephesus is the capital. It's the culture center of the Eastern Roman Empire. This is John, 
in Ephesus, the church that was planted by the Apostle Paul, where Paul sits for three years teaching in Ephesus. This is where Timothy is installed as pastor. This is where John ministers as pastor emeritus. This is where John more than likely brings Mary, mother of Jesus. And so John is definitely writing to a very Ephesian audience. This Ephesian audience is the, sort of the center of philosophical thought of the Eastern Roman Empire. Ephesus is where the temple of Diana is, the seventh wonder of the ancient world, where they have this enormous, black, grotesque meteorite carved into the likeness of Diana. Into that context, John says, let me explain. Now, there are three other gospel accounts in our Bible, Matthew and Mark and Luke. They are all what we will be calling synoptic gospels. That is, they have the same view, soon with optic view. They see things the same way. Matthew and Mark and Luke are all gonna write a linear, biological, chronological account of the life, ministry, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Linear, chronological, biographical. That's not how John writes. John's writing theologically. And all of these gospel accounts are somewhat nuanced and different. The gospel of Matthew is saying, behold your king. He is the rightful king, the son of David. He is here to reign and to rule and good news, he is righteous. Ah, but the gospel of Mark has a different approach. The gospel of Mark says, behold the suffering servant foretold of Isaiah. He is the one who will suffer and he will take away all of the sufferings of humanity and he is good and we can trust him. But Luke is a Gentile. Luke writes more words in our New Testament than any other author, including Paul, and he's a Gentile. That's interesting. Luke's got a different point. Luke says, behold the man. He is Lord Sabaoth. He is the son of man foretold by Daniel 12. He is the culmination, the, the high watermark of what man is supposed to be. There was Adam, he blew it. He's the last Adam. Behold the man. But John's got a different point. Whereas Matthew says, behold your king. Mark says, behold the servant. Luke says, behold the man. John is very clear. Behold your God. He is God. The climax of the book, I'll go ahead and spoil the punchline, comes at the very end. Jesus is about to encounter in his resurrection body a guy that we call Doubting Thomas. Thomas says, yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know. I, I get all this stuff, but seen some stuff. Yeah, I heard some stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I won't believe until I touch, until I see it with my own eyes. Jesus says, come here, Tommy. Put your hands here. Put your hands here. And Thomas falls to his knees and he says, my Lord and my God. And that's the whole point. See, one of my heroes in the faith, a guy named S. Lewis Johnson, great professor, Bible scholar, wrote long ago, the gospel of John is pure, unadulterated propaganda. Without apology, without ambiguity, without question, John is trying to convert you. John is trying to get you to believe. His whole theme and reason for writing is in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. At the very end of the book, here's what John says. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
And so really that's the whole theme of the Gospel of John, so that you will believe. That's the theme of our morning, of this introductory message, so that you will believe. So that you will believe. John is all about propagandizing Jesus, who he is and what he did. Now, since we've read the passage, let me do just a little bit more background. Those 18 verses that I read, we call the prologue, or maybe the foreword. We're almost certain that John writes his gospel, finishes it, and then comes back and adds the first 18 verses after the fact. In other words, here's how it all went down. This is what I want to show you, but I'm still not sure you're getting it. And so he adds the prologue or the foreword at the very beginning of his, of his writing. Because John understands under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if you just read the account of what Jesus did, you'll say, like all of us humans do, meh, that's pretty cool. And so John goes back and he drops these first 18 verses. These first 18 verses are like a nuclear bomb that goes off mushroom cloud and you are supposed to receive that radiation all the way through as you read from chapter 1 verse 19 till the end of the book. And if you don't have these first 18 verses in mind, you'll never catch the spunk and the spark of what happens in chapter 2 or chapter 12 or chapter 20. This is the bomb that goes off that is supposed to glow as we walk through and read through this book. So having said all that, let me explain what John's doing. John is writing so that you will believe. And he's going to do that with two primary approaches. He's going to give you the words of Jesus. The words of Jesus. Seven different times in the Gospel of John, we have Jesus saying, I am. In Greek, ego eimi, I am. He is invoking the Old Testament name of the Hebrew God of the Bible. And Jesus says, that's me. I am the fountain of water. I am the bread of life. I am, I am, I am. Seven times. And what's really fascinating is we don't have all of the words of Jesus. John gives us these seven statements. John's also going to give us some works of Jesus. The word that John uses is semion. It's a sign. It's a wonder. Every time John gives us one of these signs, it is to back up and defend and amplify one of the words that Jesus has spoken. Jesus will say, I am the such and such, and then he will do a work to defend it and to confirm it. Every time. There are seven I am statements, and there are eight works. Now, in the Gospels, the other three Gospels combined, we think there is about a total of 32 miracles. John's just going to give us eight because they are building to his point so that you and I will believe. We don't have a whole lot about this Jesus. We know that he lives about 33-ish years, that his earthly ministry is about three years long, but of, the, of the, those three years, all we have recorded is about 52 days of his life. And each one of those 52 days is not a full day. They're just snippets of what this Jesus does. John's going to draw from that and say, let me my little pin light so that you will see and so that you will run out of your darkness so that you will believe. Let me unpack this as briefly and quickly as I can. Back to John chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1, John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
All of the other gospel writers, because of the point that they're trying to make, start at a particular point in time. Matthew starts with the genealogy to explain to you that he's the rightful king. Mark starts with the ministry to show you that he is the servant. Luke starts with the coming of John the Baptist and the, all of that that was going on to show that Jesus is the man. <laughs> but John, well, let's see. He starts, uh, carry the one. In eternity past, before even creation. See, the book of Genesis starts in the beginning. God, this is before the beginning. In the beginning was already the Word. In the beginning was already pre-existing the Word. Jesus was not created. He did not come into being. Why does John say the Word? In Greek, the logos. There's a couple things going on here. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John is writing to both a Hebrew and a Greek audience. Now, in Hebrew, there is an expression, the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord came to such and such the prophet, and he spoke. In the beginning, God created, and the word of the Lord said, and it was so. It is Dabar Yahweh, the word of the Lord, Dabar Yahweh. John is saying, this Jesus, he is the word of the Lord. It's not like one day in eternity past, the father looks over to Jesus and goes, hey, won't you make me something? Jesus goes, all right, get a load of this. Woohoo! And now we have a platypus. Didn't work that way. God says, and that which did it, Dabar Yahweh, it's Jesus. The creative effort, the energy, the efficacy, it's Jesus. But not only that, John says, in the beginning was the Logos. What is the Logos? In Greek philosophy, from Aristotle all the way back, all the way through, in Greek philosophy, they understood that there was a cosmic mover. They didn't know what it was. Something was bigger than them. Something was moving in the cosmos, controlling, guiding, directing everything in the universe. There was a moving mover. They didn't know what it was but everybody assumed it. By the way, you and I now live in a culture and a context that is vastly different. There is what we call a hostile, secular nihilism going on in our world today. And it is everywhere that says, no, no, there is nothing spiritual in existence whatsoever. There is only the material. There is only the measurable. And anybody that says anything other than that is mad. That's the world in which you live. But 2,000 years ago, everybody assumed, rightly, that there was something else out there moving, some cosmic force. They didn't know what it was. So they just called it the Logos. The Logos was the great force of the cosmos. It would be sort of like, imagine, if you can, the universe, maybe the multiverse, it's a really big place. We think that the universe spreads out at least in 14 billion light years in every direction. That's even bigger than the Texas Panhandle. It's true. It goes on forever. And in all of that universe, so far as we know, there is a force called gravity. Now, gravity's kind of weird because we know that it exists everywhere and that it's strong and it's pretty uniform except for around black holes, then it gets a little bit wonky. But gravity is a force that holds the entire cosmos together, holds galaxies in place, holds planets in place, stars, the rings of Saturn, comets, everything is held in place essentially by gravity. Would you please stand up, Steve? 
Now, this is going to take a while, so get comfy. No, 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 not yet. Don't clap for me. Yeah, that's, that's coming. I want you to just for a moment let your mind go to the enormity of gravity. Universal immensity of gravity. Now imagine how you feel when I tell you that that is gravity. When he walks in the room and says, it's me. I'm gravity. You're going to say, I beg your pardon? Uh, no, you're not. I have a general idea of what gravity is, and you ain't it. Wait, 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 I'm not finished. Not only am I gravity, he says, I'm also light. I am the very existence of light and the absence and the extinguishing of darkness. I am all of the heat that light has ever produced from the warmth of the sun to the embrace of a mother with her infant. I am light, I am heat, I am gravity, and it's me. How are you going to receive that? That's precisely what Jesus does. What more information do we have of what this man claims? We should throw rocks at him until he is dead. He is a blasphemer. John says, I'm telling you, he's the Logos. I had breakfast with him. He pointed and giggled when I stubbed my toe. It's him, and he is bigger than gravity. He's bigger than light. He's bigger than heat. And I had my head on his chest. We had meals together. It's him. It's him. It's him. It's the Gospel of John. Thank you, Steve. You may be seated. Now you can clap. Now, as enormous as it would be for one person to claim to be gravity and light and heat and all knowledge, what Colossians calls him, the sum of all information, it's still not enough. See, I want every single one of us, I pray that every single one of us, by the time we walk out of here, we'll have a much bigger, much more believable picture of Jesus. John's going, I don't, I don't know what you think, that he was some good rabbi, that he was a revolutionary, that he's a pathetic martyr. No, 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 no. He's the Logos. He is Dabar Yahweh. God spoke, and he is the one that did. John says he was from the very beginning. There's never been a time when he was not. That's how big he is. I'm just in verse one. Sorry, here we go. He was with God. He didn't come into being because of God. He has always been with God and he was God. He didn't become divine. There has never been a time when he was not divine. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, John says, you, you, you got to understand this. And he's shining his little light across the horizon. Verse two, he was in the beginning with God. Pros, theon, toward him, inclined him, in relationship with him. You see, Jesus, the Christ, could not have been a created being because if he was ever created, then there would be an infinite eternity past in which he did not know the Father. And that breaks the whole system down. No, he is eternally existing. And you need to know that for when the cults come to your front door, ringing your doorbell, handing you magazines, and they're coming, and they will tell you, no, he is a created God. Take these two fingers and take these two fingers and get off my porch! Because you're not going to listen to that. John says, don't you understand? Please understand the enormity of this God. Verse 3, all things were made 
through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1 has the same idea. Hebrews 2 has the same idea. He is creator God, not some carpenter from Galilee merely. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Not just the source of life. No, no, that's not good enough. He is life itself, not just gravity, not just light. He is life itself. Psalm 104 says he is the great zookeeper of the cosmos. Every living thing draws life from him. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Some of you might have an older translation that says the darkness has not understood it. Possible translation, catalambano. Probably not. I think in the context it's overcome. John has in mind extinguishing. You got to remember in the ancient world, light was a very fragile thing. If you lit an oil lamp or a candle in your home and someone opened the door too fast, it blew out that candle and light was extinguished and darkness fell. But John says, oh no, 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 no. The light has come into the world and it has extinguished darkness. It's like when Jesus came into the world, darkness was barely hanging on and the light went and darkness is extinguished. I hate the dark. This is such good news for someone like me. The darkness has been extinguished. It did not overcome the light. Now, verses six through eight, I'm gonna be super brief on because we're gonna talk about this next week, Lord willing, about John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptizer, not a Southern Baptist. That didn't come for a very long time. He was named John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Why does John interrupt this narrative and include this little part about John the Baptist? That's weird, seems out of place. Ah, ha, ha, ha. The very last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. I'm sure many of you read Malachi devotionally. In chapter 3, verse 1, God says, I'm about to go silent for 400 years, but before I go, let me tell you, I will send Messiah, and you will know that Messiah has come because I will send a messenger proclaiming him. And when the messenger comes and proclaims him, then my Messiah will come, and he will cleanse the temple. Okay? 400 years, silence. Jesus comes Jesus incarnates. He becomes flesh. The very first thing John tells us that he does in chapter 2 is he goes and cleanses the temple. See, you don't just get to say, hey, I'm the Messiah. No, 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 no. God's messenger has to anoint you. This is why it's weird that John baptizes Jesus. Jesus says, has to happen this way. You are the messenger that is proclaiming, the forerunner for me. And so John just gives us a little bit of insight here to know this is all a part of God's plan. Let me pick up now, verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. This had been God's plan to reconcile and redeem his people from before the foundations of the earth. Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him. He became that which he created. He came into the stuff that he made, yet the world did not know him didn't understand. I mean, just imagine if it's this guy and he's going, I'm light, I'm life, I'm gravity, I'm heat. You go, oh no, you're looking awful lot like Steve. <laughs> they didn't know him. Verse 11, he came to his own, that is his own stuff. That's just a, a, a neutral material world. He came to the stuff that he had made, but his own people did not receive him. 
He came into his own stuff, the physical, material world, but his own people, that is the nation of Israel, did not receive him. In fact, they ratcheted it up a notch. They ignored him. They attributed his works to Satan. They mocked him. They ridiculed him. They arrested him. They beat him. They tortured him. They hired false witnesses who couldn't agree with one another to lie about him. They got it wrong. They beat him and tortured him some more. They illegally put him through a mock trial. They hanged him on a cross, suffering intolerable cruelty and pain. After Pontius Pilate had said, Behold, Israel, behold your king. And they said, We have no king but Caesar. And he said, Then may his blood be on your heads and that of your children. And God said, Receive. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Ah, however, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, that is all believing Gentiles and all believing Jews, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, who he said he was. I am Dabar Yahweh. I am the bread of life. I am the fountain of life. I am the door. I am that I am. For all those who believed he was, despite all of the reasons not to believe it, the signs that he confirmed his sayings, they believed. To all who received him, who believed in his name, God gave the right to become children of God. Right is the bad word. It is, he gave the power to become children of God. And there's two words for power. One is where we get our word for dynamite. One is where we get our word for authority. To all those who received and believed, God gave the power, the strength to become his children. Mm. Or God gave the authority. Yeah, the word is authority. My sons come into my home. They open my refrigerator and my freezer at the exact same time. I don't know how they can see both compartments, but they do. And then they proceed to clear both sides out like a swarm of locusts. Why? Because they're stronger than me? They actually are, but that's not why. It's because they have that authority. They have that proximity. They have that place. They have that relationship. And John says, to those who receive, to those who believe, you get refrigerator rights in God's house. Most of you, if you come to my house, you're probably not going to open up my fridge. And if you do, be careful about shelf number three. I don't know what that is either. <laughs> but John says, those who receive, those who believe, he gives the authority not to just become saved, not just to become the people of God, but to experience and enjoy the full blessing and benefit of being God's Son, female, male, doesn't matter. Race, doesn't matter. Sons of God. Galatians says we get the rights to become firstborn males. Every single one of us. It's an astonishing scandal of grace. Verse 13, who were born, not of blood, it's actually plural, not of bloods. I'll explain that in a moment. Nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Nor of bloods has this idea, hamartion, of all of our attempts, all of our strivings, all of our accomplishments, it's human religion. This is as clear as you get that salvation is by grace, through faith, in Christ, alone, not of works, lest anyone should boast. John says it a lot more succinctly and poetically. Not of bloods, but by the will of God. You didn't figure it out. You're not the sharpest knife in the drawer, not the tastiest sandwich in the basket. It's God's doing, not yours. I understand that that might be offensive. And I don't care. Verse 14. <laughs> and the word became flesh. The logos, the cosmic force of existence, 
Dabar, Yahweh, became a dude. It's the New Eric translation. It's pretty rough, but follow me. It's what John is saying. He became a person and he dwelt among us. I was with him. Played kickball. We never got that guy out. He was incredible. He dwelt among, he lived with us. We touched him. We smelled him. We ate with him. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, who comes at me ranks before me because he was before me. John's quoting John the Baptist. Don't get confused. John's mother, Elizabeth, was cousin to Mary. Elizabeth gets pregnant first, some five months earlier. John comes first. And yet John comes in the world and goes, hey, no, no, no. Jesus comes before me. Ha, ha, ha. John the Baptist understood that his second cousin, Jesus, was pre-existing, came before him. He was five months older. He was older than Jesus chronologically, incarnationally, but Jesus comes before him. Verse 16, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. This is 2,000 year old smack talk. In the ancient days in Ephesus, there was a heresy going around called Gnosticism that said you have to find secret knowledge to, assu to assume and to receive fullness, the plerao. You have to go and do all of these things. You have to have secret knowledge. You got to meet the right people at the right time of day, ask the right questions, wear the certain thing, and then perhaps you will begin to attain some of the fullness and maybe get an inkling of some ancient grace. And John goes, ha, 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 you idiots. From him, we received fullness, free, without doing anything. And we received grace upon grace. It is a one sentence, one verse refutation of the heresy of Gnosticism. You don't care today, but you should because it is still rampant in our world today. It's any other religion built on anything apart from grace. John says, now we have received it fully, grace upon grace. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. By the way, the, the law was good. It revealed the moral character of heaven. It revealed what God's purity looks like. And yet, because of the law, we also understood that we could never do it. God understood that we could never accomplish the law of Moses. And so he gave us the system of sacrifice. That something innocent has to die. Something innocent has to bleed. And John says, yeah, there was Moses, there was Aaron. But Jesus is grace and truth. He fulfilled the law. He was the sacrifice all in one person. He was gravity. He was light. He was heat. He was happiness. He was a person. And I ate dinner with him. Mm, do you see? So that you will believe. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. John uses a technical term. No one's ever seen God except the one who was with God. Jesus has exegeted God. When we preach scripture, when we teach God's word, we want to exegete. We want to bring out and say, this is what it is. John says, Jesus is the exegesis of God himself. He is the one that shows us. See, one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is the story of Moses in Exodus chapters 33 and 34. Moses, this is always a good idea, is negotiating with God. 
He's saying, these people of yours, these people, they smell like sheep. They're always complaining. They keep trying to throw rocks at me until I'm dead. These people, I've had it with them. And God says, you know what? They do kind of stink to high heaven and they cranky. So you know what? You're right. I'm out on this deal. I'm going to send y'all onto the promised land, but I'm not going. And Moses goes, whoa, 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 whoa. bad translation, but it's kind of like that. Whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean you're not going? God says, no, you're right. I've had it with these people. They're a stiff-necked, unrepentant, rebellious people. I'm not going. Moses goes, no, 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 come on now. Let's not, no, 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 no way. God says, no, 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 for real. I'm going to send you in, Moses. I'm going to make you rich and famous. I'm going to send an angel on ahead. He's going to pave the whole place like a parking lot. It's all going to be Moses' land. You're going to love it. Moses says, no way. No way. If you don't go, we don't go. We're not going to go without you. You are our God. And God says, you know what, Mo? I like you. Turns out, I will go with you. Well done. Now, Moses, what do you want? Moses says, like that. I just want to see your glory. And then in an instant, you get the whole character revealed of who Moses was and what he was like. Moses, what do you want? I just want to see my God's glory. That's all I want. God says, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I could have sworn you said you wanted to see my glory. Moses says, I want to see your glory. God says, you can't. You'll die. I'm God. You are not. I dwell in unapproachable light. But I'll tell you what I'll do. And he takes Moses and he puts him up in a cleft of the rock, in a cave. And he covers Moses with his hand. He says, Moses, I'm going to walk by. I'm going to cover you with my hand. I'm going to walk by. I'm going to proclaim who I am. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate, the Lord, wise, the Lord, slow to anger. That's all you get right there. He just got him a little bit of a flash and Moses sees the back of his robe. That was it right there. And it was gone. Moses is glowing for 40 days. John says, you don't understand. We didn't have to go into a cave. He didn't cover us with his hand. We were with him. I saw him pick stuff out of Peter's teeth. We had breakfast with him. We saw his glory. This is who Jesus is. John writes this so that we will believe. He drops this nuclear bomb in these first 18 verses so that we will radiate for the rest of our time together in the book of John which leads me to be uncharacteristically practical in closing an application. Let me just say why this text is here and I think why we are studying it today. Five questions that this text answers of every single human heart. These will be brief. Every single human heart at some level is asking these questions and this is the passage that answers them. I don't know where exactly you are this morning. But I know, as I've been praying about this passage in this morning, that God wants to answer these questions in some of your lives. Number one question goes like this. What is God really like? What is God really like? Every civilization, every people group, every anthropological tribe in the history of humankind has assumed deity. But what's he really like? Is he good? Can we trust him? This passage answers that. What is God really like? Jesus! Jesus, man, he was good. He was so kind. He was so compassionate. Jesus never hurts anybody. He loved people unconditionally. He talked to lovers. He talked to losers. He talked to liars. He talked to lepers. There was no one beyond his grasp. 
He was so loving. He accepted. And he was right. It's never wrong, not once. What is God like? He is good. And you can trust him because if you've seen Jesus, Jesus says, you've seen God. Number two, does God really understand the human struggle? <laughs> yes! More than any other religion has ever attempted to answer, our system of faith demonstrates that God understands the human struggle more than any human ever. He is the only human ever to never give in to any temptation, to suffer at the hands of those that he made, to suffer a fracture in fellowship for the first time from the Father from all eternity. Oh, does he understand what it is to have the human struggle? More than you and more than me. And he loves us so much that he's willing to go through it anyway. Which brings me to question number three. Does God really care? Yes! He is gravity. He's light. He's heat. He's warmth. He's love. He is God. And he stepped into that. Ugh. Just imagine. I'm stand up again. No, don't. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> the condescension to which he was willing to go. Because in the mind of God from eternity past, you and you and me, God said, they're worth it. The chubby one's afraid of the dark, and I love him. I will extinguish his darkness with, with my own life. Does he really care? John says, look at Jesus. Yes, he really cares. Number four, does life really matter? And I see this gets into immediate questions about everyday life. Does life really matter? questions of the unborn, questions of end of life. Does life really matter? God himself takes on human life. The Logos, Dabar Yahweh, he himself becomes a human. And listen, scripture tells us he will forever, for all eternity, be a human being. He will never again not be human. Yes, life matters immensely. Your life matters immensely. There has never in the history of humankind been a wasted human being. And Jesus is the proof of that because he becomes a human being as demonstration. Fifth question, what is life ultimately for? What is life ultimately, what is the point? What is the purpose? John says, gives us the answer. John answered, and the word became flesh, and we beheld his glory. It's the reason for life. The larger Westminster Catechism says, man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and to fully enjoy him forever. And to the extent that you do that, you will enjoy and experience fullness in life. And to the extent that you do not understand the glory of God, you will never have a meaningful, rich, purpose-filled life. It's all about God's glory. See, the incarnation of Jesus, this high point of our scriptures, I told my wife this morning as I was thinking about, I have to stand and preach John 1, 1 to 18. I feel very much like I'm standing in front of Mount Everest and I realize, whoa, that's a big mountain. And it's steep. And it's cold. And I'm wearing like gym shorts and New Balance running shoes and some mittens. I'm grossly ill-equipped. So all I want to try to do is to say, look, this is the high watermark. John telling us, God became flesh. The incarnation, C.S. Lewis said, 
is of central importance. C.S. Lewis said, the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. Christians say that God became man. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. See, we are to think rightly about this Jesus. A.W. Tozer was right. He said, what we think about, what comes into our minds as we think about God is the most important thing about us. This passage is shining the light on the horizon that we will think rightly about this Jesus. Or maybe 1,600 years even before C.S. Lewis. St. Augustine said this about Jesus. Man's maker was made man that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse helpless as a helpless child, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that truth might be accused of false witnesses, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. It's the Gospel of John, it's the Apostle John, shining his light so that you will believe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are, for what you have done in Christ to redeem us to yourself and to one another. Thank you for the Gospel, the good news, the great story, the awesome announcement. I pray, God, if there's one here this morning who still does not have these five questions resolved and answered, that you would move irresistibly by your Spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your Son, God incarnate, Emmanuel, the with us God. Father, for the rest of us who have known you and been known by you for some time, would you compel us to pray that you would do for others what you have done for us? And would you increase and expand our capacity to comprehend your glory, to think rightly about this Jesus, and live as if it were all true? We thank you that it is. And we pray all these things, the only way we can, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.